Miracy. If you're not acknowledging your own humanity and realizing what you need to do in terms of physical and emotional spiritual fitness, that's going to get in the way of your being able to show up and serve the way you aspire to serve. I'm Sharon Richmond, and this is To Lead as Human. For more than 30 years, I've run a business called Leading Large, helping C-level executives increase their impact. We work in partnership to clarify their priorities for growth, energize their organizations, and build cultures of respect and accountability. In this podcast, we help you supercharge your leadership by introducing you to real-life executives who've intentionally built successful organizations where the customers, the business purpose, and the employees all thrive together. These business leaders demonstrate the principle of leading large. They know that as leaders, the power that comes with their position demands of them an equal measure of responsibility to their customers, employees, shareholders, and communities. These organizations deliver stellar value while also fostering purpose and meaning and a healthy working environment for employees. In each episode, we have the opportunity to learn from the challenges and successes they've experienced on their leadership journey. My guest today is John Reckford, the longtime CEO of a very special organization that I'm pretty sure you've all heard of, Habitat for Humanity. This organization has helped more than 59 million people construct, rehabilitate, or preserve their homes. Since 2005, when John took this top leadership role, local habitat organizations in all 50 U.S. states and in more than 70 countries have grown from serving 125,000 individuals each year to helping more than 13.4 million people last year. That is a lot of people. John has walked a fascinating, if a little bit unusual path from his undergrad days at UNC Chapel Hill, just down the street from where I grew up, where he was a Moorhead scholar, to his early roles at Goldman Sachs and with the 1988 Seoul Olympic Organizing Committee, where John not only helped with marketing, but actually coached the Korean rowing team. After John got his MBA at Stanford Business School, he started his leadership journey in the business world at the Marriott Company, at Walt Disney, and Best Buy. And then during, I think, what I would describe as a reflective pause in his corporate career, John was serving as executive pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church when he was recruited in 2005 to the CEO role at Habitat. John's been named the most influential nonprofit leader in America by the Nonprofit Times in 2017, and he's also the author of a book called Our Better Angels, Seven Simple Virtues That Will Change Your Life and the World. Welcome to the show, John. I know that was a really long introduction and a fascinating mix of environments that you've led in, so I'm really grateful for you to be here today and so looking forward to talking through your leadership journey. Well, thanks so much, Sharon. It's great to be with you, and thank you for the kind introduction. Absolutely. So we have to start with, how did you get to coaching the Korean rowing team? So can we start with that one? It seems surreal, but it was one of the deep inflection points in my life. I was an English poli-sci major who was going to go to law school and go into politics to be like my role model grandmother, who was a ferocious fighter for human and civil rights, and came to the shocking realization, I had no interest in being a lawyer. I just thought that's what you did in order to go into politics, so had to come up with plan B. And in a moment of great naivete and hubris, talked my way into a job in corporate finance at Goldman Sachs, despite having no business or finance or any other training. 
with the thing, not completely true argument that I would learn finance faster than other people could learn how to communicate. And, uh, and I think I suffered mightily for that and learned a huge amount. I'm grateful. It, it was a great organization. It was an incredible education, but I realized I probably wasn't supposed to be an investment banker and I wasn't leading the kind of life I had imagined. I was working all the time. I was not volunteering or serving. I was not paying attention to my faith or inner life. And I thought I have got to regain perspective and applied for a bunch of things that allowed me to go see the world and was lucky enough to get a grant from the Henry Luce Foundation. And Luce was the founder of Time Magazine and his parents had actually been missionaries in China. So he grew up with this deep love of Asia. And the foundation still today sends 15 young Americans from all different fields to go work in Asia for a year. And I, um, I sort of did it differently. But when I got it, I had loved sports. I'd been an athlete and Korea was going to host the Olympics. And I thought, how great is that? And I ran around Goldman in a wonderful coincidence, was about to manage one of the first ever Korean equity offerings for a Korean company. And I asked if I could serve on that team, got to go over to Korea. They didn't know I was a junior and was able to set up a marketing job with the Olympic Organizing Committee, which had me so excited. And then to my great surprise, they sort of pulled me aside and said, we want to introduce you to the head of the rowing association. They said, we only qualify because we're the host country and we just fired our coach. And would you consider we see all this rowing in your background. Would you consider helping with our rowing program? And my response was, no, go get a professional coach. I'm totally <laughs> unqualified for this. And to my great surprise, they persisted. So I went home. I left Goldman early, worked out with the U.S. coaches who were very generous and not scared of the Koreans as a competitive threat. And it's a little like the Jamaican bobsled team, but it led to my living in the training camp with all the Korean coaches and athletes for the year. So a complete cultural immersion in a different world where, you know, in a pre-internet, pre-email world, I was completely away from everything that was familiar. And I think that chance to live in a different culture, to be the only, actually, there was a Russian boxing coach and me and then 1,500 Koreans. And it was such an amazing year in so many ways and gave me the space to pull back and really think about what sort of life I wanted to lead, how I wanted to think about, you know, what sort of person I wanted to be. And I think that was such a pivotal year for my faith, a pivotal year for regaining perspective and then applied to grad school with this idea of, of learning skills in the private sector to bring to the nonprofit sector. Yeah. And you've done that, I think, so thanks for sharing that story. I did name some of the early leadership roles as I was introducing you. And I'm just wondering, as you reflect back, what's a meaningful lesson you took from each of the leadership roles or maybe even earlier? I had two unbelievable women role models in my life. And I was so lucky for that. My grandmother was a woman named Millicent Fenwick. She was one of the relatively few women in the U.S. Congress back in the 70s. And she was a tremendous fighter for human and civil rights. And Almost every time I saw her when I was young in summers and Christmases, she would quote her favorite verse from the Bible. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And then she would ask what I was going to do to be useful. That was her view of the good life. We're supposed to be useful. And I think that grounded in, and my godmother similarly was an amazing pathbreaker. Her name was Jill Conway, and she was the first woman president of Smith College and then lead director of a number of huge companies, including Nike, Colgate, Palmolive, and Merrill Lynch. And she had this incredible ability that my grandmother actually didn't have to be totally present with you in the moment while still managing all the complexity and chaos. And she had really influenced me in terms of as a mentor to think about why I wanted to lead. 
the second piece I would say, so first, who do you follow? Second, I think is really thinking about your why. And I'll give a kind of painful example in college and maybe even after college, I was just a bundle of ambition, but you know, with a big picture of wanting to do good in college, actually ran for student body president and lost. I think I wanted to do good. I think I would have tried to accomplish good things. But if I'm, you know, sometimes it can take my godmother's view is you can't really think about your own life until 10 years have passed because you can't be objective. And I think if I'm really honest, I was running because it was something to achieve more than because I really wanted to get something done. And her lesson, which I've always remembered is, you know, if you're really focused on accomplishing an important mission, you'll get the power you need to accomplish the mission. If you get that backwards and focus on getting power, you're going to get turned sideways. And I found that to be so true over time. And I think a third lesson was when I was a young manager at Marriott and Disney, and even in retail, which was the most unexpected part of my career, I was really good at managing people who were like me, who wanted high autonomy, who wanted to be given you know, a strategic direction and then go figure out how to get it done. And that worked beautifully. But suddenly when I was managing larger teams and much more diverse teams, I had people who wanted very concrete direction and very specific. And so learning to have a flexible leadership style that was less modeled only on my own preferences, but more on the needs of the different people and teams I was trying to serve, I think was an important part of that growth. And I think the, I would tie to that was learning to be more authentic and more vulnerable with my teams. And I grew up probably in a family system where you've never showed weakness, where it was, you know, my sort of mantra was no problem. Everything, you know, can manage all of it. And I think certainly as a leader, we always are supposed to be optimistic that we can figure it out. But I think being more open in terms of the way I build relationships with folks and demonstrating appropriate vulnerability, I think has been part of that growing edge as well. I'm really struck by those very powerful role models who, having lived out in, let's say, more or less the corporate political worlds, really, that's the context within which you grew up. So I imagine it was all very familiar to you. It didn't feel like a strange place. The least familiar, funnily enough, was the business world. My dad was a classics professor, and so I grew up in a wonderful college town in North Carolina, and I think my world was much more academic, intellectual, and political, and business was sort of a completely foreign concept. Now, if so many young people are oriented towards business in college and thinking about business careers, it never even occurred to me until my senior year in college that I might even consider anything in business. Yeah, we have so much in common in our backgrounds about that. True. My dad was a professor in the medical school down the road from you at Duke. And so I grew up over in that college town and similarly just had not had as much exposure to the business world. So I know for me, business school was kind of an eye opener. I imagine it was for you, too. Very much. And it's where I think certainly that grounding at, at Goldman, as tough as it was, was an incredibly valuable experience for just getting exposed. You start as a generalist, then you got to find something to kind of ride an elevator up. And for me, what I found when I was in finance is I was less interested in the finance and more interested in the strategy. And so I tilted much more towards, is this merger a good idea versus can we make the numbers pencil? And in that way, I think the theme across my very random career was really helping start new businesses or grow businesses within big organizations. And that was sort of the anchoring. And I always was really interested in how do you innovate and change? How do you start new? What led me into retail 
was the fact that Circuit City was starting CarMax. And I thought that was fascinating because it was going to totally disrupt the way cars were sold. And I was so interested in that. And so I, I think maybe that's another lesson that I talk to students about all the time, which is, you know, rather than thinking about what is my career going to be, I think often an interesting question to start with is what problem do I want to solve? What's out there in the world that is really upsetting me? And how could I come up, you know, be a part of changing the conditions that are creating that problem? I love that question so much. What problem do I want to solve? And I think it's a question that at least what I've heard from a lot of our guests over the last year or two is they stop every now and then and rethink that and ask themselves afresh, what problem do I want to be part of solving now? I think it's not a one size and a one time ever question. My favorite definition of vocation comes from a theologian, Frederick Buechner, who died recently and a wonderful writer. And he said, your vocation is that place where the deep gladness of your heart meets the world's great need, which is nothing to do with easy or sort of superficial happiness, but that deeper sense of joy and fulfillment from getting to be part of something that really matters. So you've been in your role as the CEO for a fairly long time. It's coming close to 20 years. And I have to imagine that you've continued growing and learning and becoming a better leader. So as you reflect back over your tenure there, how would you describe some of those key inflection points and maybe how the changing needs of the organization required th different things from you that you had to figure out how to deliver? Uh, that's a great question. And actually, if you'll indulge me, I'll back up one step before because you referenced it in the introduction. There was a second kind of big inflection point, which was I had actually Stanford, a little bragging, was out front and probably 20 years ahead of most of the business schools believing we needed professional management of nonprofits. So Stanford and Yale were kind of the early vanguard in this theme. Now it's a mainstream idea that we need professional management of nonprofits. And I share that because coming out of business school, I thought I would go maybe right into the nonprofit sector, but there weren't a lot of career paths or opportunities. And so my then plan B was I'll go learn and then build the skill set that I could eventually bring across. I was president of a chain called Musicland that is now dead. So Best Buy bought Musicland, which was good for their shareholders, but ultimately probably not a great strategic acquisition. And I stayed to help with it, but I did what I usually recommend people don't do, which is I left without knowing what I was going to do next. But I really wanted to make the pivot towards some international service mission. We had little kids and I was working hard and it was always hard to, to take time away from both family and work was a really tough ask. But with my wife's blessing, went off just for a couple of weeks to rural India and served with a group that was serving the among the caste system in India. These are the absolute lowest families in the whole social order. And literally in those days, only allowed to hand clean latrines and clean up dead animals. And they weren't allowed to live in community. They were outside the walls of villages. And about half these kids were dying by their 13th birthday from the conditions in which they were living. And it just shattered me. And I came back on fire. And to my great surprise, local church asked if I would be willing to come and basically be the administrative pastor to run all the operations and manage all the teams so that the senior pastor of this very large church could really be the spiritual leader and not get bogged down. And everyone I trusted for career advice said, don't do this, which was very scary. And I thought, you know, this is, I'm supposed to do it. And it's so interesting because I think, I really believe if I'd said, I'm going to go work for the church, so my perfect job will come along two years later. It just wouldn't have happened that way. But in fact, I look back and the two, you know, that waiting period and time of preparation, what I call the white space, you know, your resume has all the highlights, but leaves out where so much of the growth happens, which is around the failure and the white space. And then the two years of serving in a church where it's all about, 
influence, not authority. It's all about mobilizing volunteers. And I think I both grew personally and grew my leadership in a way to be ready when I wasn't looking two years later and a headhunter called, do you know anybody who'd be interested in Habitat for Humanity? Which, you know, I look back and then it actually checked every single one of that unreasonable list I had, but I wouldn't have been ready had the opportunity even come up two or three years earlier. I think there was a first phase of what I would call stabilization. How do you honor the past and stimulate change or progress? Because you can't come in and just denigrate everything, but there were a whole lot of things that people really wanted to change. You know, one thing I stole from someone else was so helpful. I just interviewed so many people, and this was a great leadership lesson. And the questions I asked were, tell me three things that I absolutely, uh, that must change around the organization. Tell me three things that should never change in the organization. Tell me what you're afraid I might do. Tell me what you're afraid I might not do. And then what advice would you give me? And I talked to all the sort of different stakeholder groups. And it was so interesting to sort of find the themes. And it led to one of my core axioms, which is we should be religious about our principles, but not our tactics. And the other piece, which I wouldn't have anticipated, I had my 100-day plan, you know, all things hope to do. And right when I started, I got the job at the beginning of August of 2005. I was going to officially start the first week of September. August 27th, Hurricane Katrina hits the U.S. And we were already responding to the Indian Ocean tsunami, which had happened at the end of December 2004. So these are two mass scale housing disasters. And if I look back, I would never have wanted it, but it was such a large scale disaster. The combination of the two helped us start to think about moving from building a few houses in a million locations. We were literally in 3,000 different communities across the world in 100 countries. And two, how could we build lots of housing in concentrated areas given the scale of the magnitude? So we ended up building 25,000 houses in Southeast Asia in the four countries who were hit hardest. And then over 6,000 houses in for families impacted by hurricanes Katrina and Rita. And for Habitat, those were at a scale we had never worked at before. And that allowed us to break rules because in a disaster or crisis, as many people have said, you have freedom to do things that might culturally be really hard to do. And some of that work, particularly the work in Asia, planted the seeds for what became our scaling strategy later. So I'd love to pause at this juncture for a minute because there are so many parallels between the way that you lead a large not-for-profit and the way that you lead any business venture of any size, really, but particularly organizations that are trying something new and getting ready for that scale moment. So the first challenge, I guess, was... Did you need to convince people about changing the culture or were these two high, high amplitude needs enough to kind of shake things up? Yeah, I think both. The analogy might be somebody trying to run franchises because you can make some decisions, but those local owner operators have a big voice in what actually happens. And we have, we're not as wide, we're much deeper, but not as wide as we were, but we still have over a thousand affiliates in the U.S. that are local 501c3s that implement our work in local communities across the U.S. And we're still in 71 countries. And so that's a lot of extra stakeholders along with donors and the ultimate families and communities with whom we want to partner. And so I would say there were people who were desperate for change. There are people who would rather die than change. But the reality is any growing organization is always changing and evolving. And there are going to be some people who are like, when are we going to stop changing? And the answer is when everyone in the world has housing. At least you have an answer. Because when are we going to stop changing? Most people would just say, um, never. I've had an amazing mentor named Daryl Connor, who is a great friend. And he is one of the world's experts on how to implement change. So anything I say about change, 
is because I learned it from Daryl and in mission-driven organizations. There's change because if you don't change, you'll die. That's the burning platform metaphor. And then there's change because if you don't change, you won't have as much impact on the mission or be able to help as many people. That's actually a harder level of change. Most people, if it's die or change, will move to change. But it's harder sometimes when you're doing fine, but the need is still that much greater to enroll people in change. And so I think it takes a lot of work being explicitly clear about why the change needs to happen, explicitly clear about what good would look like if we do change. So I think the way that we used to describe this to the executives at Cisco when I was leading that center of excellence over there was, you have to go slow to go fast. You have to get the basics in place and do that executive sponsorship piece, which without it, the organization will flounder. So let's look at the business, nonprofit, kind of what do we each learn from the other? Because I'm sure there's some things you learned, whether it was through business school or in business as a leader that you poured it over that work really well and are really important and maybe some differences. I chair a group called Leadership 18, which are the CEOs of the biggest U.S. nonprofits. And we've been having this conversation quite a bit because I've sort of seen both things not to do and things to do. And it's interesting because her, you know, my thesis of coming to Stanford, who had the public and nonprofit management program, I do think there's a desperate need for professional management of nonprofits. I would also say the lines between for-profit and nonprofit are increasingly blurring. You know, there are B corporations, there are purpose-driven for-profits, and there are, you know, Habitat is a not-for-profit legally, but we have multi-billion dollar mortgage portfolio. We run a chain of a thousand thrift stores that had 700 million in revenue. We have a hundred million dollar wholesale microfinance uh, fund. So we're doing a lot of different activities that they kind of blur the lines. But I would say one thing, particularly for highly mission-driven, and this would be probably true in the for-profit too, is language matters. So if people who didn't like change were very quick to say, oh, we're going corporate. Anything they didn't like was going corporate. And that was bad. And you know, my view is, wait a minute, you know, we're using other people's money to serve those with the highest needs in the world. We should be better than the private sector and unapologetic. But for instance, if I talk about, you know, in those early days, higher return on investment, the eyes would glaze over. Now, if I talk about good stewardship, people are like, oh, well, we should be good stewards. Well, good stewardship looks a lot like return on investment, but the language does matter. And we need the public sector, private sector, and civil society or the social sector all leaning in together. And therefore, I think we need more multi-sector leaders. So when I hire senior leadership, I love people who've worked in multiple environments, ideally, or at least multiple cultures, because they've demonstrated they can actually succeed in more than one place. When I sometimes think of myself as bilingual between corporate and nonprofit, because sometimes you'll actually see corporate leaders and nonprofit leaders with the same goals, totally miscommunicating because they don't have language. Yes, that translation function is really important across so many differences. So there's been more and more focus on employees need a sense of purpose. They need a sense of meaning and a mission to attach themselves to, or they cannot become as engaged and involved and committed as both they want to be and as the company needs them to be. So that's something that I think flows from the nonprofit world into the for-profit world of how do we manage employees as if they were volunteers? I love that. Yeah. One of the things I learned at the church was we should actually manage volunteers more like staff. And I actually would argue, just as you said, staff more like volunteers. 
So volunteers actually should get job descriptions and they should get the resources to do the job well and they should get training and they should be held accountable, which people are terrified to do. But I would argue staff should get loved and encouraged and supported the way we tend to treat our volunteers. It's uh, along with those other good things. But I do think there are differences. I mean, it's funny. I get two groups sometimes coming wanting to come to Habitat from the private sector. And, and one group is I want purpose and I have been successful. There's that book, Halftime. And I love the phrase moving from success to significance. And I think there are people who have that, you know, I've been successful. I want to have significance and they'll come with world-class skills. And I get really excited. There's another group who come who I would say, Hey, I've been working really hard. And I think it'd be nice to come work for a nonprofit and relax. And I'm thinking you do not have this right. You know, most people who've come to join us have found it more complicated, more intense, more stakeholders. In the private sector, you have to manage, of course, lots of stakeholders, but you've got stock options and bonuses and financial incentives that we don't have in the nonprofit side. But the other side you have is typically the clarity of the financial returns, even if you have a balanced scorecard, are sharper. And I think the tensions you get in the nonprofit sector with all the competing customers, in a sense, valuing the next unit of advocacy versus the next unit of volunteer engagement versus the number of units of housing and how you're changing markets. The metrics can be complex in terms of creating social change. I think that's something that's worth pausing to really think about. So how many employees are there at Habitat? So if you looked at big numbers, because I mentioned we're federated. So if you added the thousand affiliates and the 70 countries and the umbrella group that I serve, I think about 18,000, but only about 900 of those directly work for Habitat International. So I'll tell you what I want to explore with you is this idea of what happens differently when you treat an employee like a volunteer. What does the leader do differently and how do the employees respond differently? Yeah. Let me start by just saying I'm a work in progress and I do not have all this figured out. So in our culture, which aligns very much with my philosophical approach, is it starts with a frame that our aspiration is to be servant leaders so that ultimately it's mission first. And I think sometimes I can get upside down, which is to the end that we want to, in our case, put God's love into action by bringing people together to build homes, communities, and hope all over the world. And to do that, we need fired up, talented, and motivated employees. And when I look back and where we made mistakes, it was hiring for great technical skills, but not paying enough attention to cultural fit, which is always a trap, and not being patient enough to wait for both. You can find both, but it sometimes can take longer. I think in nonprofit world, and especially faith-based nonprofits, there tends to be a passive-aggressive culture. And we certainly found that when we did the initial studies when I arrived. And it was nice. We had a nice culture. And I actually want us to be nice. You know, I, we would never succeed if we were a mean culture, but confusing nice and clear. And I've refused to believe one can be either nice or clear. And we've used one phrase, graceful candor, which is candor. You know, we should be speaking the truth. We should be telling people and be quick to have healthy conflict. But that is, shouldn't be in the absence of respect and kindness. And at Habitat, we had a lot of people who were kind, but not necessarily clear enough. And a very few people who were really clear but not kind. And neither of those would work really well. I think something we, I would have done in different sequence if I did it again, was that the step we had to belatedly circle back to was we had this list of behavioral values that was like 15 values and no one knew it and they weren't real and they weren't 
ingrained. And so we had to go back retroactively and go, okay, we had a missing step between our mission and principles and our strategy, which was what are the core values that we're really going to be serious about and hold people accountable to and build into everything we do. And, and we landed on three. I insisted on three because you can remember three, humility, courage, and accountability. And what I liked about those three is they balance one another. You couldn't live without any one of the three and be successful in the mission, but then hiring people that demonstrate those behaviors, building our development and management development systems around reinforcing those behaviors, and then rewarding and celebrating people who demonstrate you know, those behaviors and making the hard calls that people who are not living those values, even if they are high producers, cannot stay in our culture. That is a hard thing, isn't it? Especially in a mission-driven culture where you have so many volunteers that are involved, there's this sense that, oh, there's something for everybody to do. And I can imagine that one has to be kind of careful with those conversations. I think it is, so much of it is, does it start with respect? And one of our deepest principles is we build with, not for. So it is, we come alongside families and communities and help them, you know, lead and grow and change, but it has to be their agenda or you don't create long-term change. That, I think, is something that a lot of organizations could benefit from really, really deeply thinking about. Who are we serving and are we putting what they need in front of what we need? What are some of the management practices that you've instituted that help with that? There's a phrase I really like that was anchored in our strategy work, which was their problems you solve and their tensions you manage. And I found that really helpful because sometimes it's not so much just a problem. It's the fact that you've got competing goods and you've got to make decisions among competing goods. So for instance, in our programmatic work, we have a value that we want to build assets for these low-income families so they can be self-sustaining and have an intergenerational asset. That's a really good thing. We have another value, which is we want everyone to have housing. So then there's a tension between do you give less subsidy to more families and create the most housing possible, but or is it more important to give you know, the most subsidy to a smaller number, similar tension. Do you help the most needy families who have the least, but that requires more subsidy? Or do you work with the families who have some income so that you can help at a much larger scale? And I would describe those not as good versus bad, just tensions. And we've got to pick, you know, where we're going to live in those tensions. And I think in our practices, one of the pieces is just, do you have data? And historically, nonprofits were not as strong on that. We have great stories, but we didn't always have data. So the first step was immediately just starting to measure. So doing annual employee engagement as just to start with a baseline of how are people feeling about work here. I do think there's a difference between engagement and happiness. And you can get intense pushback to change in mission-driven organizations because often, you know, what brought somebody to the organization was life-changing for them. Therefore, it's very threatening to think about changing that, even if that's a good program, but here's a better program, and we're going to push more resources to something that, that we have now measured and shown to be a, a higher impact intervention. But that's tough for that donor or that program team to feel like something they have invested their heart into is not being sufficiently valued. And so does everyone actually have a personal development plan that they've generated and their manager has blessed? The one sometimes harder in a dispersed organization is everybody clear on what success looks like sort of at the larger strategic frame so that whether you're in Malawi or Bangladesh or Milwaukee, the story we're trying to do is consistent. And I find that takes a long time. I remember a former boss encouraging me and saying, by the time you think you'll just go nuts if you have to say it again, you might finally be reaching the edges of your organization. <laughs> you know, so that sort of consistent, consistent, consistent story of kind of where we're trying to go and how we're going to get there. 
So this respect, I say in my intro every single time we record and with every guest, I talk about building cultures of respect and accountability. What's the secret sauce for marrying those two from a leadership point of view? I believe respect is not just morally right. It's actually practically the best way to get there as well. And so my personal belief is is servant leadership is the only way to make it work in the nonprofit sector. But I also believe it's the best model for leadership in any environment and the recognition that every employee matters, every person out there with whom we partner matters and has intrinsic worth. And you have to start there. And I feel like our culture is moving completely in the wrong direction on this. We have, you know, our political world is the opposite of respectful right now. We have more polarization. I think social media rewards extreme positions. Our broader media rewards extreme positions. But I think a good majority of the country is so hungry for the opposite, for connection and community. So I think the starting point is, I think for people to understand, even if we don't agree I'm going to take you seriously. I'm going to really listen and show you that I have understood your perspective and considered it and that, you know, I'm committed to working with you to figure this out. And I think underlying it, if that's there, then it's easier to hold people accountable. And I think it's probably easier for people to accept feedback. And, you know, I think that's one of my growing edges probably as well. When I was a young leader, I was so attentive to the self-esteem of the person getting feedback and so wanting to be encouraging and nice about it that I would give them the feedback, but they might leave feeling good about themselves, but not clear that they really had to change their behavior. <laughs> and that's not really success. If you were to summarize what you think your fundamental beliefs are about what it means to be a good leader or how to do it, how would you summarize those today for yourself? You know, I think it begins with, do I actually know my own core values? So then you've got to make sure you work with an organization that is consistent and aligned with those core values. And maybe the scariest part is, am I and is the leadership team living out our values? Because if we're not, it's really hard to get everybody else to buy in. So I think there is a key looking in the mirror piece of all this that has to undergird all the rest of the work. It's a perfect segue to the next little piece I wanted to talk about, which is I know our listeners especially love hearing like, what were those moments of vulnerability? Where were you struggling and how did you figure out what to do? So is there a moment or a story you can think of that you think is kind of pinnacle to how you've evolved as a leader? When I think about some of the toughest times, I would say one of the, you know, the really tough times was dealing with the dynamics of our large federation. So when I first joined, there was a lot of desire to raise accountability and we learned so much good and bad. And I think we did the right things, but did we do them as well as we should have? And I would say no. And to give context, which is a little bit hard for even our own people to believe, Habitat had gotten enormous and was all over the world. And we had just a one-page covenant agreement, but we had no common logo. We had no legal agreement with any of the almost 3,000 different Habitat entities, and we had no standards. Oh my gosh. That's very surprising. I know. It's so there was a beautiful part of that because it was really a movement, not an organization, but it had become an organization and the world suddenly had become digital and the expectations of the world had changed dramatically. And so, you know, in the old days, if something went wrong in Timor-Leste or in, you know, a small town in, in Idaho, it was a mission failure, but no one really found out about it. Now, suddenly all of our reflected glory and shame was available to the world at a keystroke. 
And so we rolled out a common logo. We rolled out affiliation agreements with every country and affiliate, and we rolled out minimum affiliation standards and then, you know, higher expectations. That was painful. And we had worked with the Vanguard on the change, but we didn't listen enough to the detractors, I would say, at the front end, and therefore, you know, had more pain to get there later. One of those principles certainly is make sure you're hearing all the different voices and really hearing all the different voices when you're considering a change. You still may not be able to make them happy, but at least are they invited to have meaningful input in the process? We're going through another giant change now, but we designed it very differently. And the whole philosophy is we're going to build this with the affiliates. And you still can't make everyone happy, but a different change. And similarly, I think the second piece, which I tell every new Habitat leader for each of our, any affiliate or country, is that we are deceptively complex, but also if you get your board right and your senior leadership team right, everything else goes a lot better. And I really learned this in retail, which is if you don't have the right board and you don't have the right senior team, these jobs are just going to, will eat you up. So one of the big investments we're making now is upping the skills of our country leaders, upping the caliber of what it takes to be, because that level of Ownership really can drive success or failure. Yes, as long as you've got the basic systemic processes in place that are, like you said earlier, not too bureaucratic. So we're coming close to the end here, but I've got a couple wrap-up questions. What have you learned about your leadership in the past year, and how is it going to shape the way you approach your role in the coming year? I've been thinking a lot this year about relationships and the value of, for leaders, and I think especially for CEOs, having the deep and trusted relationships where you can be fully transparent. Because I think when you're CEO of whatever level organization, you want to be authentic with your team, but you can't necessarily be 100% transparent. And if you're feeling like this is hopeless, we're going to die, that's probably not a helpful message to uh, share, even if it's a temporary feeling. And so you want to be optimistic and I think authentic in saying, hey, I don't know how we're going to solve this really complex thing, but I'm confident we're going to come together and we're going to figure it out together and we will get there. And so... I think having the safe places, even if it's one or two fully transparent friends where you can be totally honest about everything. I think that's about life even more than just business, but they correlate. Similarly, I'm struck ever since the pandemic, but it's still true, even more aware how many people in the organization are having something going on in their non-work life that is having a big impact. And so how do we model both grace, still accountability, but how do we have the support for folks who are going through struggles of a family struggle or a, you know, a some kind of struggle in their life? And we have employee resource groups and others that we've tried to have multiple mechanisms so that people can find encouragement or support. Yeah, that does seem to be an especially important, but also difficult thing for organizations to think about what is our responsibility for the people that are part of our organization? Yeah, I think it fits in the tension. There have to be limits at some point to it, but I love that people experience our culture as a very high care culture. And that so when people do have a crisis or, a, you know, we had a very sad thing. My dear friend and long, long time CFO died last year. Oh my gosh. Of a really aggressive and rare cancer and, you know, devastating. But it was amazing to see how the people rallied around him. And in some ways, I saw us at our best. And then the tricky part is how do you keep everything going? and do that. And sort of certainly imperfectly, but it's always under stress when your values get revealed, right? The storm reveals how good the foundation is. Absolutely. I like the housing analogy. That's perfect. So what's your current learning edge? What are you trying to get better at this year? 
we should always be growing and learning. You never want to be kind of standing still. And so inviting accountability is probably a piece for me that I want to push this year. And I think the other one, honestly, that's the biggest struggle for our organization and for me too, is when you layer all the geographies and all the cultures and all the different programmatic ways we go and all of our ambition, there's a complexity tax. And so a big area of focus is can we simplify and drive for that clarity? Because I think if it gets too complicated, that starts to bog us down at some point in terms of consistent execution. Yeah, that makes sense. So the title of this podcast, as you know, is To Lead is Human. And I always love to ask every guest, what does that mean to you? Well, I think by definition, organizations are made up of people. And for leaders to remember, hey, we are human too. And even the sensitivity and self-awareness to go, wow, I am reacting strongly to this. Is that because this is such a bad thing? Is that because this person's behaving so badly? Or is this because I'm really tired and don't have the emotional reserves to play? And so, you know, one of the things I always say to new leaders and actually to all our staff is, but especially to leaders is you need to know what you need to do spiritually, physically, and emotionally to be able to show up every day the way your team needs you. And that's going to be different for each one of you. But if you're not acknowledging your own humanity and realizing what you need to do in terms of physical and emotional, spiritual fitness, that's going to get in the way of your being able to show up and serve the way you aspire to serve. So you've written a book called Our Better Angels, Seven Simple Virtues That Will Change Your Life and the World. And I wonder, what might you like to share with the audience about this book and who it's for? Well, this book is really for everybody, not just housing experts. And it's really about what kind of society do we want to have. And the genesis of it was actually an op-ed I did with President Carter many years back. And it was after a big hurricane hit Houston, if you remember Hurricane Harvey, and tons of damage and displacement. And the comment was, that President Carter said is, when the person coming to rescue you is of a different religion or of a different race or a different ethnicity, you don't care. You're so glad they're there to help you. And there's a spirit of kind of the community coming together after a crisis. And the question was, why can't that be true when there's not a crisis? You know, why are we so divided? And it basically, it's a book of stories of individuals and communities creating wonderful change and volunteers going out and realizing that the biggest change was to them for the chance to get that feeling of community. So my hope with the book was to encourage people. And after you read it, your response, I hope, will be, this is great. I need to go out and do something in my community and then be part of this. And that's where the title came from, Lincoln's second inaugural and that idea of, of our better angels. And so uh, President Carter said, as the waters rise, so do our better angels. Can we do that? So it's just full of stories that will make you feel a little better about the world, which maybe we all need. I think we all need it now more than ever. So I actually am looking forward to reading it. I could use that lift myself. I thank you so much, John, for being here today. What's the best way for listeners to keep up with you and what you're doing? And what's the next big challenge on your plate at Habitat? Thank you so much. Well, the easiest is go to Habitat.org and you can learn about the sort of breadth of, of work we're doing. And I think the part I'm really excited about, which is more daunting, is, is a long time ago, we changed our framing question from how many houses can we build to what would it take to meaningfully reduce the housing deficit and all the geographies we serve, which really forced us into thinking about markets and systems. And we're doing a lot of exciting work, but it's also daunting because unfortunately we are at a full out global housing crisis right now. And so missionally, Habitat feels like it's doing well, but if you look at the state of housing, I feel a desperate sense of urgency. And I hope everybody will be the kind of yes in my backyard helpers to make this better. 
I did read that that you had led a recent panel, I guess, discussing Yes in My Backyard, and it's so inspiring. So I very much appreciate you joining me today and sharing your own executive journey. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure, Sharon. Great to be with you. Thanks so much. Please stay with us for a moment, and I'll share some of the takeaways I have from my conversation with John and a coaching tip to help you advance your own leadership starting today. Wow, that was such a thought-provoking conversation today. There were a number of things that really stood out to me. So I'm going to try to capture them briefly, but I think the headline I would say is, we talk on our show all the time about building cultures of accountability and respect. And that's my highest level takeaway from John today. He's got a couple of really key points about how to do that. The first thing is, as a leader, you have to have self-knowledge. If you're on a leadership path, reflect on these three questions that John raised, especially early in your career, I think, but at any time. Who are the role models that inspire you and your leadership? What is your personal why or purpose? And can you lead others? How can you lead others and learn to lead others who are different from you? In other words, cultivate a flexible leadership style. I particularly love Uh, John describing his godmother's suggestion about his own why when she said she asked him the question, how are you going to be useful? I have to admit, it reminded me of Thomas the Tank Engine, the very useful engine from a children's TV show. The other thing is John confirmed how important this is to him as he told us his favorite definition of vocation, the place where the deep gladness of your heart meets the world's great need. Clearly, that's a key part of John's why and it's guided every step of his journey. In retrospect, he sees it, like so many of us, not that it was so clear to him as he was taking his path forward. The second thing is leaders, especially leaders of change, have to care deeply about and take the time to understand others' perspectives, many different kinds of stakeholders. And I especially appreciated the way he described the listening tour that he went on and the questions that he asked the folks when he was first joining Habitat for Humanity. So I'll recap those for you in a sec. I think John had to get really comfortable with being vulnerable as he joined the organization because he knew he needed to build a caring and accountable organization. And to get there, he would have to talk about his own values and some very personal matters, why they're important to him, and how his faith-based beliefs would give him the compass he needs as a leader. I think the phrase we talked about that best captures to me blending respect and accountability is this, treat employees like volunteers and volunteers like employees. And that conveys both halves of respect and accountability. For employees, we think about accountability all the time, but often we don't think about, am I treating an individual human being with the full respect that each one of us deserves? We get busy in task environments and we just forget we should not. With volunteers, we much more likely are going to appreciate them and treat them with respect and understand that they're helping for other reasons. But we forget sometimes to offer accountability tools like clear responsibilities, like ways to measure their contributions, and like goals and deliverables. The kinds of things we always think about in the workplace, but we forget when we have large groups of volunteers 
At least some of us do. So if you can take this concept into your own organization, really think about what would it be like? How would you be different if you treated employees like volunteers? What would you do differently? I have to admit, I thought John had some really great career advice. Ask yourself not what job do I want or what company do I want to work for, but what problem do I want to be part of solving? And then his second piece, he didn't offer it as career advice, but I'll offer it as career advice. Don't be afraid to go against the advice of others if your core beliefs tell you something is the right choice for you. He made choices that others didn't really think were going to be great for him. And in both cases, it led him to reflective time, clarifying the view of the future life he wanted to lead and enabling him to be ready when the opportunity to join Habitat for Humanity came to him. So today I have two tips for you. One came directly out of the conversation with John, and that is take a listening tour, especially if you're joining an organization as a new leader from the outside. Ask the kinds of questions, very personal questions, that John asked, and I'll recap them for you. What three things must change around here? What three things should never change around here? What are you afraid I might do as I take leadership here? What are you afraid I might not do? And what advice would you give me? By asking these kinds of questions instead of just the regular questions of who are our customers? How much of the market do we own? What do we need to do to take more market share? The kinds of things you might typically think about asking. Get a little deeper and find out what it is that the people in the organization find to be so precious that you would never want to inadvertently ruin it. The second thing is use accountability agreements. If you are trying to build a culture of both respect and accountability, take the time up front in a working relationship to clarify and agree on what are the deliverables and accountability expected. Make sure the mutual expectations are clear and agreed to. Whatever you set up up front, that's what you will have to use as you talk both about the development of your employees and the delivery of their accountabilities. I'm Sharon Richmond, and this has been To Lead as Human. You can find out more about me at leadinglarge.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G large.com. To Lead as Human is part of the Miracy FM podcast network which also includes such shows as Course Lab and Making It. This episode was produced by Cynthia Lamb. Andrew Chapman assembled the episode, and Marvin Del Rosario is the audio editor. Danny Eaney is our executive producer. So you don't miss upcoming episodes. Please follow us on Miracy FM's new YouTube channel or your favorite podcast player. If you learned something useful today, take a minute to write it in the comments wherever you've listened to this podcast or even send me an email and let me know what did you find useful. S-H-A-R-O-N at leadinglarge.com. The more leaders we can reach with our podcast, the better for everyone. So tell your colleagues about this episode and thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next time on To Lead as Human. To Lead as Human.